0: We've been in a series all fall looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And you'll probably remember last week we looked at a uh, study on, on contentment and how God provides contentment. Today we're looking at God's promise to meet your needs. And in between last week and this week, we had, good fr- we had uh, uh, Black Friday and the shopping uh, madness. And, and some of you are thinking... Did Paul plan that to somehow organize all of that? And uh, if you're thinking that way, then you're assuming that I'm far more smart than I actually am. And if God had some, some plan for uh, how these messages fell, we'll trust him with that plan. But uh, that's where we are. Anyway, um, we are talking about uh, God's promise to, to meet our needs. And uh, before we go there, I think it's helpful to sometimes step back and look at... The alternative, uh, because we don't need to—we uh, uh, don't need to seek God's promise to meet our needs. We can live in other ways, and for me, Frank Sinatra is a uh, a picture of that. The alternative, the uh, the other approach, whatever we'll call it. Uh, Frank Sinatra, obviously uh, a legend, uh, having sold 150 million albums, he is one of the. Uh, greatest selling uh, musical artists of all time, and he managed that while also balancing a, an acting career that involved a Golden Globe and an Academy Award. So he has had an incredibly successful career. Now, you would think that someone who had had that successful a career wouldn't have any money problems, right? Except he did. Uh, In an interview, his daughter, Tina Sinatra, talked about some of his struggles. Uh, Particularly in his later years, he began to suffer poor health. Uh, He got into his 70s and uh, began to struggle in different ways. And despite his failing health, he had this drive. I've got to keep giving concerts. I've got to keep going on the road and uh, do all that I can. Uh, she described uh, some, of, uh, s- some of what she experienced of that uh, in one of the concerts that she went to visit him, uh, where she went to see him in Las Vegas. Uh, he was performing, and as many of his concerts, in his, when he was into his late 70s, his voice wasn't what it used to be, far more uneven, and, and he struggled with his singing. He also struggled with his memory. He would struggle to remember songs and was, uh, uh, in, his, in his later years, he was, uh, had to focus uh, using teleprompters to, to remind him what he was singing. Um, even still, partway through one of his songs, he just forgot it altogether. And she's there watching him, this is my dad, this is the legend, and he's halfway through a song, he completely forgets a song that he's sung now thousands of times. And when he stops singing, of course, the crowd takes it up, and they they start they, they end up completing his song for him. Comes to the end of the performance, and he goes off stage, and he is so uh, worn out and sick, he is immediately has to put on an oxygen mask, trying somehow to... Uh, regain his, his, uh, his, his breath, regain his strength. And his daughter Tina sees this in her dad and says, Dad, you, you don't need to do this. Uh, she said, Pop, you can stop now. You don't have to stay on the road. And when she said that, she heard him say something that she'd heard him say countless times. He said, No, I've got to earn more money. I have to make sure everyone's taken care of. The sad thing is that following his death, as you may guess, there was constant fighting over his estate and his inheritance. Today, his daughters are estranged from his wife. Uh, There has been just a feud over over the money. And obviously, it, it wasn't bringing him peace, and it hasn't brought... Uh, his family piece either. For me, Frank Sinatra is a picture of everything that's wrong with our world's approach to money. Everybody assumes, if they'd only have enough money, I'd be content. Frank Sinatra had $200 million, and it didn't seem to bring him that contentment. He shows us that if you're looking for contentment in more, then more is probably never going to be enough. But more than that, he, he gives us an alternative to everything that our passage this morning is talking about. Because the Bible calls us to do two things. It calls us to a life of generosity and to a rest in God's faithful provision for those who have out of out of love and gratitude for what God has done, have taken a and chosen a life of generosity. We hear that in the Bible and we see that in the Bible, but there's something inside of us that says, I think I've got a better plan. (laughs) I'll take care of my own needs and hold on to my own money and God can do what God will do. And if I get stuck sometime, if I can't pay off all those credit card bills from... Black Friday shopping, then I'll pray to God and please bail me out of this and somehow help me. It, it gives us an alternative, I think, to, uh, to to see in Scripture that there is a different way to live. There's a different way to approach our finances. There's a different way to uh, to relate to God. And and when I look at Frank Sinatra, it wasn't just the the the, the sense of of drive for for more and the sense of insecurity that seemed to come with that for me the 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 saddest part is that in addition to passing on that two hundred million dollar estate to his family, he passed along his values he passed along his attitude toward money, his insecurities toward money, and so even with more money than they could possibly spend, seemingly they inherited some of his, uh, some of his pain, and some of those really toxic attitudes towards money. Where that leaves us with this morning is uh, our passage. Uh, preaching about money is about as popular as cheering for the Canadians when you go to a Leafs game. Like, nobody, nope, you don't want to hear about a sermon about money. I don't particularly want to preach a sermon about money. But I I look at Frank Sinatra and I think, "Ah, I think there's too much Frank Sinatra thinking about money in our world today. And it robs our joy. It steals our peace. It keeps us from contentment. And as we'll see in today's passage, it keeps us from the promise of God's faithful provision that he would otherwise make. So I want to ask you to do something this morning. I want to just put aside... um, some of the defenses that we have towards money, some of, some of the, the thinking that inevitably seeps into our own uh, values and approach to money, and just let God's word speak for itself. To, to allow uh, God to give us maybe a completely different way of understanding uh, our finances and to enter into uh, his, his promise to provide. Uh, to do that, I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we have finally come to the end of this uh, great letter, and I will be reading uh, chapter 4, verses 14 to 20. Philippians four, fourteen to 20. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Now this passage contains a remarkable promise from God to provide for those who are generous for Jesus' sake. He honors and blesses a life of sacrificial generosity. And I want to consider that call to, to consider that call to generosity, along with God's promise to those who are generous. The first thing I learn about God's approach to money is that in God's, in, in God's economy, giving by faith is an investment. that we tend to think of anything that we let go of or release in any way as. It's, it's gone, it's not coming back, there is no, uh, there's no benefit, we, we, we lost that one. But in God's understanding, the, the, the resources that we release in, in faith, that we release in response to his uh, goodness and, and faithfulness in our lives becomes an investment. I, I use this term giving by faith because there's something unique about offerings that are, uh, are given as a response of faith, as uh, a response to God's uh, goodness and faithfulness in our lives. When we, when we give in gratitude for what God has done, when we give in thanks for his goodness in our lives, then uh, we, we have uh, a different attitude. One of, the, one of the things that's different about giving by faith is it's an expression of fellowship. It's actually the language that's used here uh, on a couple in a couple places by Paul. For instance, in verse 14, Paul says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. If you have an ESV, you'll see that the footnote for that word share says to have fellowship in. Uh, the idea is that in giving, they had not just made a... A, a transaction such that they had uh, Paul's needs were taken care of, which they were. He said, It it's more than that. It was an expression of fellowship. You stood with you stood by me, you stood with me. It, it was an expression of your solidarity with me in a time when I sure needed somebody to stand by me. Uh, so it, it becomes an expression of fellowship. He says something similar in verse 15 when he says. No church entered into partnership with me except you only. That word partnership is a, is a word that is translated in, in other places in the New Testament as fellowship. It, it's that idea that the church in Philippi, in, in providing for his needs as he was uh, both traveling, planting churches, or now in his imprisonment, that they have expressed a sense of commitment to him. They've participated in his trials and struggles, and he feels that sense of solidarity with them. It's a small point, maybe, to say that giving by faith is an expression of fellowship, but it is an important part of fellowship that I don't think we often think of. It sends the message when we give by faith, uh, for instance, I'm standing with this church body. I am partnered with this group of believers. It's an expression of solidarity. It's an expression of unity. And usually that doesn't happen all at once. First, um, early on, people's, people's giving might be motivated by guilt. They're, like the, the plate's coming around, I ought to put something in it. There can be that sense of uh, routine or, or, or guilt or, or any number of motivations. Or some people will say, I still prefer to give to my old church or to some other, some other ministry or something else that's close to me. They attend for a time because it's convenient, but they're not partnered with us. They're not fellowshipping with us financially in that sense. And again, for a time, that's understandable. A period of transition like that is often normal problem is if it continues, it then begins to hurt the body. In, in Paul's case, he experienced that because after Philippi, he traveled, traveled on to Thessalonica. He planted a church in Thessalonica, and then he went from there on to Athens, and then he went to Corinth. But with all those stops and with all, those, all that ministry and all those churches planted, uh, the church in Philippi was the only one who partnered with him. They were the only ones who supported him. They, only, they were the only ones who stood by him. They were the only ones who fellowshipped with him financially. Call it the 80-20 rule. Call it whatever you like. Thank God for the Philippians' generosity. And, and so he, he does thank them for their generosity. In doing so, though, he's at pains to make clear that their generosity was not just a one-way expense. That there was... Uh, faith, when, when faith motivates our giving, our giving is never a one-way flow. I want you to notice his wording in verse 15. He says, No church entered into partnership, that word fellowship, with me in giving and receiving, except you only. See what he said there? This word giving, we see, see that, we expect that, but he doesn't call it giving, he calls it giving and receiving. And that's a little bit strange, right, because... Like, what on earth are the Philippians going to now receive from an unemployed missionary who is under house arrest chained to an imperial soldier in Rome? You wouldn't think they're going to get much from him. They're, what is that giving and receiving that he's talking about? He gives us a little bit more of a, a hint in verse 17. He uses accounting language. That's where he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, fruit that increases to your credit is kind of strange language. So, again, the ESV gives in the footnote a better sense. It says, I seek the profit that accrues to your account. This was accounting language. Uh, When he had talked about giving and receiving, those were common financial terms for debit and credit. Uh, Receiving and and taking. Uh, Here, when he talks about the fruit that increases to your credit or the profit that accrues to your account. It's with the sense that the Bible treats giving by faith as an investment. It's with an expectation that there is a return from that. In this case, probably not from Paul, but that there is some sense in which God is promising uh, a return. When we give not to get something back, but in devotion to God, we are making eternal deposits and God is treating those very seriously as spiritual investments. Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25 says something very similar. There it says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. I never learned, I, and I, I took a, took a first-year economics class. This never came up. This kind of, this kind of economic principle just doesn't show up. This, this is not how our world sees money. But when our giving is motivated by faith in response to the goodness and glory of God, it becomes more than just giving. It is no longer that one-way flow. It's saying that people who, who use the little money they have to give, to bless others, uh, to give freely, will find themselves blessed, blessed both materially and spiritually. God will do two things. He will not only bless them, but he will then channel more resources to them because they are stewarding those resources for his glory. The, also, the opposite is also true according to the verse, right? Right? It's saying that the person who holds back when he should give will suffer want and miss out on the blessing that God would otherwise provide. Again, what's happening here is that one person is managing the resources that God has given them for his glory, and God says, I'm going to channel more of my resources there because they are being managed according to, to, to my heart and my plan and my desire. Another person thinks... Hey, this money's all for myself. I'm just going to, you know, I deserve it. I'm going to do this and do that. And the, God says, given money over there is kind of a lost cause. None of it's being managed. It's all going, it's a bottomless pit. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redistribute some of that wealth. That, that's the principle of the passage. Out of the hands of people who just spend it on themselves and into the hands of those who manage it according to his priorities. So giving by faith is an investment. It, it's something that comes with a, a sense of, of interest and eternal return. It's much more than that, though. Giving by faith is also an act of worship. Someone has said that we can either worship God with our money or worship money as our God. You can either worship God with your money or worship, uh, worship money as your God. Giving by faith is either way is an act of worship. Now I said from verses 15 to 17, Paul was using accounting language. He was talking debits and credits, giving and taking, spiritual interest and in return. The, the, the language there was, uh, was focused in that direction. But in verse 18, he then turns in a different direction and uses his language in different ways. There he calls the gifts that they had sent to him by Epaphroditus, a fragrant offering. Um, if you're kind of coming cold to Scripture here, that might sound like a bit of perfume or something. What If you were here with us when we were in our series in Leviticus and we walked through the different Old Testament sacrifices, you'll remember this phrase, a fragrant offering or an aroma pleasing to the Lord, gets repeated again and again throughout those sacrifices. There was a good reason for that. God had commanded various sacrifices. They were to bring their bulls and their goats and their sheep and make sacrifices to him. Uh, they, they were sacrifices that in some cases were to explain, to express the forgiveness of sins, the covering uh, and, and God's atoning work in a person's life. But people being who they are, the tendency could start to be that you just see these things as a ritual that God must just want a tax of animals or something. He must just, just want us to, to make these sacrifices, something we've got to do. It's, it's like tax season here in Canada. Just, it's just something we've, we've got to do. If we don't, then we don't get out of the penalty box with God. And so it, it, th- those were the kinds of thoughts that could have gone through the, through the minds of the Israelites. And so that they don't see those sacrifices that way, he repeats this phrase, a pleasing aroma, a pleasing aroma, uh, a fragrant offering. And as soon as you hear that phrase, then it takes it out of the realm of any thoughts of ritual or tax or, or just something that God wants and we got to give it to him. It, it takes it out of that realm and takes it into the realm of pleasure and delight. Uh, when you hear a fragrant offering or a pleasing aroma, it's a picture of somebody rushing into the kitchen and and smell, something smells delicious and they're getting excited about a good meal. And, 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 And that's what's happening here except God doesn't run and it's not a smell coming from the kitchen. This is the pleasing aroma or the fragrant offering that comes with someone who in faith decides to generously give to the glory of God. God takes pleasure in that. It's it's like the smell of his favorite meal. It's like the the sense of pleasure and delight that you get when you you come home and you just smell something in the kitchen or you smell something in a restaurant and you think, that's exactly what I want to have. It's a picture of delight and pleasure. And in fact, at the end of of verse 18, you'll see that phrase, pleasing to God. It's a a picture of God's delight and pleasure in someone who stewards the resources God has given them to his glory, to bring him pleasure and honor. When we're content in what we have and we use what God's given us to honor him, he takes notice. He finds delight in that. He finds pleasure in that because of the heart that it has come from. It's personal and meaningful to him. Hebrews 13.16 says something similar where it says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. When we share what God has entrusted to us out of devotion to him, he takes pleasure in it. It is pleasing to him. It's personal to him. It means something to him personally And, and it should mean something personally to us. It's an expression of, uh, of devotion to God. In verse 18, Paul calls the Philippians' gift a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So from his perspective, it's a pleasing aroma. It's something that brings delight to him. It's personal. It's meaningful. From our perspective, it's a sacrifice intended to bring pleasure to the God that we love. Again, it's personal. That's why, for instance, that we, that's why we have a, a, a time of offering during the worship service. Because according to Scripture, our giving to the Lord is just as much an act of worship as our prayers or the songs that we sing in adoration of Him. It's another way that we express worship. That's why Proverbs 3.9 uses that language of honoring the Lord with your wealth. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. We can glorify God with the resources that he entrusts to us. It's interesting that he uses that word first fruits, right? If you've never been in a farming culture or in a setting where you aren't getting crops flown in from all different parts of the world, so you never had to worry about when you, whether you're at the beginning of a cycle or an end of a cycle, then this may be not very meaningful to you. But uh, the first fruits, if, you have, if you're not getting, relying on imports for your food and you're, kind of, you're, you're making all that you've got, when the f- harvest begins to come in, at that point you've been eating last year's crops for most of the year. When you see the first of that uh, produce starting to come in, you want to get your hands on it. You want to start eating that. That's looking delicious to you. Uh, in Japan, it's new rice, labels on like all over the shelves. People are talking about it. The new rice came in. The, 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 the first um, of the harvest is in. You want to get your hands on that for yourself. And God says, one of the ways that you honor, honor me as God?" give me the first fruits. Give me that first part because I know that that's an expression of your love and devotion. It's also an expression of trust because if you're starting to to get the harvest come in, you don't know exactly how much you're going to take in nor do you know how long it's going to last. So the temptation would be, we'll harvest the crop, eat it for most of the year, and once we see that the new, new stuff is coming in, we'll start eating that, and if there's anything left over, we'll give that to God. And God said, if you want to honor me with your resources, don't give me the leftovers. Trust me enough that I will be faithful to provide, and you give, me for, you give it to me first, and trust that I will uh, provide for you, that I will be there for you. I will be faithful to you. And so you give that... Get that picture there with the uh, honoring the Lord with our wealth and with the first fruits of all our produce. The question I think is: Do you worship God with your money, or do you worship your money as your God? Frank Sinatra shows me that when you worship your money as your God, it does something to you. It steals your joy. It robs your peace. It drives you. Faster. Money is not a merciful master. When we honor God with it, it tames the money. It puts the money in its proper place. It, it helps us to see it in perspective. It loosens its power over us. And it also brings pleasure to the heart of God. So we've said that giving by faith is first of all an investment. Second of all, an act of worship. But the passage ends with this incredible promise. We learn that giving by faith is a promise of security. When we honor God with our finances, I believe we receive what Frank Sinatra kept striving for, kept seeking but never finding. That sense of rest and assurance and security. Giving by faith is a promise of security. I'm going to read verse 19 for you again. It says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I love that the verse and this sentence begins with the word and, because it defies our attempts to rip this verse out of the paragraph or out of the letter and just treat it as some abstract promise. It's not that. And it can't be that because of that word and. And connects it to everything else that he's been saying. So we would like for this to just be a a general abstract promise that this is just what what God's like. But Anne shows us that this promise is directed to the people that he's been talking about through through the paragraph and throughout the letter, the generous uh, people at Philippi. The promise is for the generous. The promise is for those who give in faith. God promises to meet the needs of the generous it's an incredible assurance. He says, my God will supply every need of yours. Every need of yours here certainly includes financial needs. It it includes the material needs that we have, but it's not limited to financial or material needs. It is an all-encompassing God will provide for your needs. You have... You might have a need for more patience. You might have a need for more grace and help and spiritual power and, and and blessing. And God promises to meet all of those needs for those who would give in generosity. It's important that it's a promise to meet our needs, though, right? It's not a promise to pay all your credit card debts after Black Friday when you kind of just got went crazy and... Uh, lost yourself in, in, in spending. It's not a promise to meet all of our wants or all of our greeds. It's a promise to meet all of our needs. That, that God wants us to discern between all the things that this world tells us that we gotta have and all this thing the world tells us that we deserve to have and all of those things which he knows that we need to have. He responds to those needs and he does it faithfully. While we said that their needs are not greeds, they're, they're, they're what we truly need, not all of the things that we might want. It is important to say that when God responds to those needs, he promises to do so extravagantly. I want you to see the language here because I'm not making this up. In verse 19, look how it ends. It says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He supplies our needs according to his riches. I'm so glad that he didn't say he supplies your need out of his riches because there's a difference between supplying someone's need according to your riches than out of your riches. If I need to get get my roof replaced and I don't have the money, And somehow, I run into Bill Gates, and I ask him, would you help me with my roof repair out of your riches? Bill Gates, hundreds of millions of dollars. If he were to give me something out of his riches, he'd say, sure, Paul, Um, I'll write you a check for 500 bucks. Here you go. And I'd be like, that's great. I just can't figure out what to do with the other... uh, uh, many thousands of dollars I need to come up with to pay for this roof. But thank you for that $500 out of your riches. If, however, Bill Gates decided to write me or check or to respond to my need according to his riches, he'd probably just put the check down and give me a pen and say, hey, how much do you need, Paul? It's a statement when God gives it to us here of God's generosity, of Yes, it's not all of our wants and greeds and, and it, it is a response to our needs, but when he responds to our needs, he does so in abundance with, with, with luxury and, and, and fullness. He's promising to supply our needs according to his riches and his riches are without limit. Jesus said something similar in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. There it says, give and it will be given to you good measure pressed down shaken together running over will be put into your lap for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you if you can picture that kind of stuffing it in just trying to get a little shaking it so that there's no air more more and even still it's flowing over i read this verse and i think about my christmas stocking if you ever come to my place at at christmas time you will know I have the biggest, most ridiculous-looking Christmas stocking that there ever was. It was made for me by my aunt when I was a little kid. I'm not letting go of this thing as long as I live. It's huge, okay? It's way too big. Nobody should have a Christmas stocking as big as mine, okay? As a little kid, I get this thing, and I think, "Uh, this is amazing. Big stocking means I get more stuff, right? If I've got a Christmas stocking that's six times as big as anybody else's, that surely means I'm going to get six times as many presents. Well, it, it never really worked that way. But, but God's saying here, if, if that, that stocking represents your need and your generosity, what God does is he, he doesn't say, well, I'll, I'll throw in an orange and a few, uh, um, and a, and a few socks and... and no, he's going to f- stuff that thing full until there is no more that can be put in that, that uh, stocking. And even still, it's going to be bursting at the seams and overflowing. That is the heart of God towards someone who is generous to him, expresses through their approach to the finances and the resources that God has entrusted to him, that he really is the most important thing in that person's life. Now having experienced this kind of lavish provision, having seen God work in his life and responding to his needs with that kind of abundance, Paul comes to the end of this just anticipating what God will now do in the lives of the Philippians and he breaks into song. He starts to praise God in worship And, and so you get you get that in verse 20. Seemingly unable to control himself, he says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And you might, on another day, you might be reading through this passage and think, like, where did that come from? Why, why is Paul praying all of a sudden? Why, why is there like amens and glory? And, and, and the, the point is, as Paul reflects on God's faithfulness to him, As Paul anticipates God's faithfulness to the Philippians, a faithfulness that sees the real needs in a person's life, and because they have responded to him in faith and generosity, he just pours out his blessing in abundance. As Paul has experienced that, and as Paul anticipates that for the Philippians because of their generosity, he just is filled with wonder and awe for his God the grace of God in that, the wonder of God in that. Again, contrast that with someone who had a lot of money. You think of the story of Frank Sinatra and a man who was worth $200 million, million still working himself to death at up to 79 years of age so that he can make more money for his family. And when he dies three years later, there's a feud and they've never really stopped fighting over it. You hear that story, and you just think, wow, so much money, so little happiness. And in contrast, Paul says, I don't have much, but I've tried to be faithful in stewarding what God has given me, and I've got to tell you, he has opened up the floodgates of blessing in my life. And the thing that causes me such joy as as i look at your lives referring to the philippians you have demonstrated that faithfulness and that generosity and i can't wait to see what god's going to do in your life that that's why paul breaks out into prayer that's why paul can't help but singing his praise to god partway through a partway through a thought uh partway through a letter he's got to put down the pen and just say God, you're amazing. To, to you be the glory. In Charles Allen's book, God's Psychiatry, there is uh, his description of an unusual phenomenon. Immediately after World War II, uh, the Allied troops rounded up a number of homeless children. They were children who had become orphans of the war, Children who had become disconnected from their families, and they were children who were in great and dire need. They were gathered together in these large camps, and when they were put together in these camps, they were fed. Uh, Their needs were provided for. They were fed abundantly, even. And yet, even after having been treated well, and now finally after a lot of uh, hungry days, they were they were they were now well fed problem was when nightfall came they still couldn't sleep they still seemed to be restless and anxious and trying to figure out what was going on and how they could how they could uh, minister to the children there was a psychologist there at the camp and he came upon an idea what he would do is that when the children were put to sleep they they were uh, the, the last round uh, before, uh, before the children uh, went to sleep for the night. They're in their beds, and they were each given uh, a slice of bread. The slice of bread, though, wasn't for them to eat. They wanted more to eat. If they were still hungry, they were given food. But this fl- slice of bread was just to hold. And what they found was that, that slice of, holding that slice of bread... <laughs> did something in the psyche of the children. Because the children, having known such hardship, having known so many days where they couldn't have a decent meal, even when it was provided for them, they went to bed thinking, we got some food today, but I don't know about tomorrow. And it was that thought that kept running through their mind, kept creating that anxiety that when they went to sleep, they couldn't fall asleep. They were filled with worry. A little piece of bread was a reminder, there's going to be provision for you tomorrow. The food won't run out. You'll be cared for. For those children, they were able to purchase that assurance with a little piece of bread. But I think what Frank Sinatra teaches me is, for most of us, that kind of peace and assurance is almost impossible to buy. We can have a sense that our needs are met today, and yet we have, if if it's all about me, and if it's all up to me, I can look at tomorrow and say, I don't know what's coming. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And the Bible offers us a different way to live. Some people will try to seek that assurance, seek the assurance of that piece of bread through more. And they'll try and seek the assurance for their children's sake through working harder to give them more, to provide them more. And again, Frank Sinatra tells me that doesn't work. How much greater to live a life of generosity lived in confidence in God and his faithful provision in our lives, his faithful promise to meet all of our needs and to meet them in abundance because he's the one who is now Lord in our lives. He is the one who is lifted up as we honor him with our generosity. Let's seek the peace and the assurance of a God who cares for us as we look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you are in our lives. Your word says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Thank you for your faithfulness in providing for us. Teach us to trust you with our finances. Don't let money rule over us. Help us to discern between our needs and all the things in our world that people tell us we deserve. Teach us to be generous. Help us to honor you with our finances and with our first fruits. Help us to worship you with our money and to trust in the security of your faithful provision for us. For we praise you for your promise. In Jesus' name, amen.